Chapter Seven, Part B of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rowland had already been sensible of something in this young lady's tone, which he would have called a want of veracity, and this epitome of her religious experience failed to strike him as an absolute statement of fact. But the trait was not disagreeable, for she herself was evidently the foremost dupe of her inventions. She had a fictitious history in which she believed much more fondly than in her real one, and an infinite capacity for extemporized reminiscence adapted to the mood of the hour. She liked to idealize herself, to take interesting and picturesque attitudes to her own imagination, and the vivacity and spontaneity of her character gave her, really, a starting point in experience, so that the many-colored flowers of fiction which blossomed in her talk were not so much perversions as sympathetic exaggerations of fact. And Rowland felt that whatever she said of herself might have been, under the imagined circumstances, impulse was there, audacity, the restless, questioning temperament. "'I am afraid I am sadly prosaic,' he said, "'for in these many months now that I have been in Rome, I have never ceased for a moment to look at Catholicism simply from the outside.' I don't see an opening as big as your fingernail where I could creep into it. "'What do you believe?' asked Christina, looking at him. "'Are you religious?' "'I believe in God.' Christina let her beautiful eyes wander a while, then gave a little sigh. "'You are much to be envied.' "'You, I imagine, in that line have nothing to envy me.' "'Yes, I have. Rest.' "'You are too young to say that.' I am not young. I have never been young. My mother took care of that. I was a little wrinkled old woman at ten. I am afraid, said Roland in a moment, that you are fond of painting yourself in dark colors. She looked at him a while in silence. Do you wish, she demanded at last, to win my eternal gratitude? Prove to me that I am better than I suppose. I should have first to know what you really suppose. She shook her head. It wouldn't do. You would be horrified to learn even the things I imagine about myself, and shocked at the knowledge of evil displayed in my very mistakes. Well, then, said Rowland, I will ask no questions. But at a venture, I promise you to catch you some day in the act of doing something very good. Can it be, can it be, she asked, that you two are trying to flatter me? I thought you and I had fallen from the first into rather a truth-speaking vein. "'Oh, I have not abandoned it,' said Rowland, and he determined, since he had the credit of homely directness, to push his advantage farther. The opportunity seemed excellent, but while he was hesitating as to just how to begin, the young girl said, bending forward and clasping her hands in her lap, "'Please tell me about your religion.' "'Tell you about it? I can't,' said Rowland, with a good deal of emphasis. She flushed a little. Is it such a mighty mystery it cannot be put into words, nor communicated to my base ears? It is simply a sentiment that makes part of my life, and I can't detach myself from it sufficiently to talk about it. Religion, it seems to me, should be eloquent and aggressive. It should wish to make converts, to persuade and illumine, to sway all hearts. Once religion takes the color of one's general disposition, I am not aggressive, and certainly I am not eloquent. Beware, then, of finding yourself confronted with doubt and despair, 
I am sure that doubt at times, and the bitterness that comes of it, can be terribly eloquent. To tell the truth, my lonely musings, before you came in, were eloquent enough in their way. What do you know of anything but this strange, terrible world that surrounds you? How do you know that your faith is not a mere crazy castle in the air, one of those castles that we are called fools for building when we lodge them in this life? I don't know it any more than anyone knows the contrary. But one's religion is extremely ingenious in doing without knowledge. In such a world as this, it certainly needs to be. Roland smiled. What is your particular quarrel with this world? It's a general quarrel. Nothing is true or fixed or permanent. We all seem to be playing with shadows more or less grotesque. It all comes over me here so dismally. The very atmosphere of this cold, deserted church seems to mock at one's longing to believe in something. Who cares for it now? Who comes to it? Who takes it seriously? Poor stupid Asunta there gives in her adhesion, in a jargon she doesn't understand, and you and I, proper, passionless tourists, come lounging in to rest from a walk. And yet the Catholic Church was once the proudest institution in the world, and had quite its own way with men's souls. When such a mighty structure as that turns out to have a flaw, what faith is one to put in one's poor little views and philosophies? What is right and what is wrong? What is one really to care for? What is the proper rule of life? I am tired of trying to discover, and I suspect it's not worth the trouble. Live as most amuses you." "'Your perplexities are so terribly comprehensive,' said Roland, smiling, that one hardly knows where to meet them first. I don't care much for anything you can say, because it's sure to be half-hearted. You are not in the least contented yourself. How do you know that? Oh, I am an observer. No one is absolutely contented, I suppose, but I assure you I complain of nothing. So much the worst for your honesty. To begin with, you are in love. You would not have me complain of that. And it doesn't go well. There were grievous obstacles. So much I know. You needn't protest. I ask no questions. You will tell no one, me least of all. Why does one never see you? Why, if I came to see you, said Roland, deliberating, it wouldn't be, it couldn't be, for a trivial reason, because I had not been in a month, because I was passing, because I admire you. It would be because I should have something very particular to say. I have not come, because I have been slow in making up my mind to say it. You were simply cruel, something particular in this ocean of inanities? In common charity, speak. I doubt whether you will like it. Oh, I hope to heaven it's not a compliment. It may be called a compliment to your reasonableness. You perhaps remember that I gave you a hint of it the other day at Frascati. Has it been hanging fire all this time? Explode. I promise not to stop my ears. It relates to my friend Hudson and Roland paused. She was looking at him expectantly. Her face gave no sign. I am rather disturbed in mind about him. He seems to me at times to be in an unpromising way. He paused again, but Christina said nothing. The case is simply this, he went on. It was by my advice he renounced his career at home and embraced his present one. I made him burn his ships, I brought him to Rome, I launched him in the world, and I stand surety, in a measure, to, to his mother, for his prosperity. It is not such smooth sailing as it might be, 
and I am inclined to put up prayers for fair winds. If he is to succeed, he must work, quietly, devotedly. It is not news to you, I imagine, that Hudson is a great admirer of yours. Christina remained silent. She turned away her eyes with an air, not of confusion, but of deep deliberation. Surprising frankness had, as a general thing, struck Rowland as the keynote of her character, but she had more than once given him a suggestion of an unfathomable power of calculation, and her silence now had something which it is hardly extravagant to call portentous. He had, of course, asked himself how far it was questionable taste to inform an unprotected girl for the needs of a cause that another man admired her. The thing, superficially, had an uncomfortable analogy with the shrewdness that uses a cat's paw and lets it risk being singed. But he decided that even rigid discretion is not bound to take a young lady at more than her own valuation, and Christina presently reassured him as to the limits of her susceptibility. "'Mr. Hudson is in love with me,' she said. Roland flinched a trifle. Then— Am I, he asked, from this point of view of mine, to be glad or sorry? I don't understand you. Why, is Hudson to be happy or unhappy? She hesitated a moment. You wish him to be great in his profession, and for that you consider that he must be happy in his life? Decidedly. I don't say it's a general rule, but I think it is a rule for him. So that if he were very happy, he would become very great? He would at least do himself justice. And by that you mean a great deal? A great deal. Christina sank back in her chair and rested her eyes on the cracked and polished slabs of the pavement. At last, looking up, You have not forgotten, I suppose, that you told me he was engaged? By no means. He is still engaged, then? To the best of my belief. And yet you desire that, as you say, he should be made happy by something I can do for him? What I desire is this, that your great influence with him should be exerted for his good, that it should help him and not retard him. Understand me. You probably know that your lovers have rather a restless time of it. I can answer for two of them. You don't know your own mind very well, I imagine, and you like being admired, rather at the expense of the admirer. Since we are really being frank, I wonder whether I might not say the great word. You needn't. I know it. I am a horrible coquette. No, not a horrible one, since I am making an appeal to your generosity. I am pretty sure you cannot imagine yourself marrying my friend. There is nothing I cannot imagine. That's my trouble. Roland's brow contracted impatiently. I cannot imagine it, then, he affirmed. Christina flushed faintly, then very gently. "'I am not so bad as you think,' she said. "'It is not a question of badness. It is a question of whether circumstances don't make the thing an extreme improbability.' "'Worse and worse. I can be bullied, then, or bribed.' "'You are not so candid,' said Roland, "'as you pretend to be. My feeling is this.' Hudson, as I understand him, does not need, as an artist, the stimulus of strong emotion, of passion. He's better without it. He's emotional and passionate enough, when he's left to himself. The sooner passion is at rest, therefore, the sooner he will settle down to work, and the fewer emotions he has that are mere emotions and nothing more, the better for him. If you cared for him enough to marry him, 
I should have nothing to say. I would never venture to interfere. But I strongly suspect you don't, and therefore I would suggest, most respectfully, that you should let him alone. And if I let him alone, as you say, all will be well for him for evermore? Not immediately, and not absolutely, but things will be easier. He will be better able to concentrate himself. What is he doing now? Wherein does he dissatisfy you? I can hardly say. He's like a watch that's running down. He is moody, desultory, idle, irregular, fantastic. Heavens, what a list! And it's all poor me? No, not at all, but you are a part of it, and I turn to you because you are a more tangible, sensible, responsible cause than the others. Christina raised her hand to her eyes and bent her head thoughtfully. Roland was puzzled to measure the effect of his venture. She rather surprised him by her gentleness. At last, without moving, if I were to marry him, she asked, what would have become of his fiancée? I am bound to suppose that she would be extremely unhappy. Christina said nothing more, and Roland, to let her make her reflections, left his place and strolled away. Poor Assunta, sitting patiently on a stone bench, and unprovided, on this occasion, with military consolation, gave him a bright, frank smile, which might have been construed as an expression of regret for herself, and of sympathy for her mistress. Roland presently seated himself again near Christina. "'What do you think,' she asked, looking at him, "'of your friend's infidelity?' "'I don't like it.' "'Was he very much in love with her?' He asked her to marry him, you may judge. Is she rich? No, she is poor. Is she very much in love with him? I know her too little to say. She paused again and then resumed. You have settled in your mind, then, that I will never seriously listen to him? I think it unlikely until the contrary is proved. How shall it be proved? How do you know what passes between us? I can judge, of course, but from appearance, but like you, I am an observer. Hudson has not at all the air of a prosperous suitor. If he is depressed, there is a reason. He has a bad conscience. One must hope so, at least. On the other hand, simply as a friend, she continued gently, you think I can do him no good? The humility of her tone, combined with her beauty as she made this remark, was inexpressibly touching and Roland had an uncomfortable sense of being put at a disadvantage. There are doubtless many good things you might do if you had proper opportunity, he said, but you seem to be sailing with a current which leaves you little leisure for quiet benevolence. You live in the whirl and hurry of a world into which a poor artist can hardly find it to his advantage to follow you. In plain English, I am hopelessly frivolous. You put it very generously. I won't hesitate to say all my thoughts, said Roland. For better or worse, you seem to me to belong, both by character and by circumstance, to what is called the world, the great world. You are made to ornament it magnificently. You are not made to be an artist's wife. I see, but even from your point of view, that would depend upon the artist. Extraordinary talent might make him a member of the great world. Roland smiled. That is very true. If as it is, Christina continued in a moment, you take a low view of me. No, you needn't protest. I wonder what you would think if you knew certain things. What things do you mean? 
Well, for example, how I was brought up. I have had a horrible education. There must be some good in me since I have perceived it, since I have turned and judged my circumstances. My dear Miss Light, Roland murmured. She gave a little quick laugh. You don't want to hear? You don't want to have to think about that? Have I a right to? You needn't justify yourself. She turned upon him a moment the quickened light of her beautiful eyes, then fell to musing again. Is there not some novel or some play, she asked at last, in which some beautiful wicked woman who has ensnared a young man sees his father come to her and beg her to let him go? Very likely, said Roland. I hope she consents. I forget. But tell me, she continued, shall you consider, admitting your proposition, that in ceasing to flirt with Mr. Hudson, so that he may go about his business, I do something magnanimous, heroic, sublime, something with a fine name like that? Roland, elated with the prospect of gaining his point, was about to reply that she would deserve the finest name in the world, but he instantly suspected that this tone would not please her, and besides, it would not express his meaning. You do something I shall greatly respect, he contented himself with saying. She made no answer, and in a moment she beckoned to her maid. What have I to do today? she asked. Asunta meditated. Eh, hey, it's a very busy day. Fortunately, I have a better memory than the signorina, she said, turning to Roland. She began to count on her fingers. We have to go to the Pie di Marmo to see about those laces that were sent to be washed. You said also that you wished to say three sharp words to the Buonvicini about your pink dress. You want some moss rosebuds for tonight, and you won't get them for nothing. You dine at the Austrian embassy, and that Frenchman is to powder your hair. You're to come home in time to receive, for the Signora gives a dance. And so away, away till morning. Ah, yes, the moss roses, Christina murmured caressingly. I must have a quantity, at least a hundred. Nothing but buds, eh? You must sew them together in a kind of immense apron, down the front of my dress. Pack tight together, eh? It will be delightfully barbarous. And then twenty more or so for my hair. They go very well with powder, don't you think so? And she turned to Roland. I am going en pompadour. Going where? To the Spanish embassy, or whatever it is. All down the front, signorina. Dio buono, you must give me time, Asunta cried. Yes, we'll go, and she left her place. She walked slowly to the door of the church, looking at the pavement, and Roland could not guess whether she was thinking of her apron of moss rosebuds, or of her opportunity for moral sublimity. Before reaching the door she turned away and stood gazing at an old picture, indistinguishable with blackness, over an altar. At last they passed out into the court. Glancing at her in the open air, Roland was startled. He imagined he saw traces of hastily suppressed tears. They had lost time, she said, and they must hurry. She sent Assunta to look for a fiacre. She remained silent for a while, scratching the ground with the point of her parasol, and then at last, looking up, she thanked Roland for his confidence in her reasonableness. It's really very comfortable to be asked, to be expected to do something good, after all the horrid things one has been used to doing. Instructed, commanded, forced to do. I'll think over what you have said to me. In that deserted quarter, fiacres are rare, and there was some delay in Assunta's procuring one. 
Christina talked of the church, of the picturesque old court, of that strange decaying corner of Rome. Roland was perplexed. He was ill at ease. At last the fiacre arrived, but she waited a moment longer. So, decidedly, she suddenly asked, I can only harm him? You make me feel very brutal, said Roland. And he is such a fine fellow that it would really be a great pity, eh? I shall praise him no more, Roland said. She turned away quickly, but she lingered still. Do you remember promising me, soon after we first met, that at the end of six months you would tell me definitely what you thought of me? It was a foolish promise. You gave it. Bear it in mind. I will think of what you have said to me. Farewell. She stepped into the carriage, and it rolled away. Roland stood for some minutes looking after it, and then went his way with a sigh. If this expressed general mistrust, he ought three days afterward to have been reassured. He received by the post a note containing these words. I have done it. Begin and respect me. C. L. To be perfectly satisfactory, indeed, the note required a commentary. He called that evening upon Roderick, and found one in the information offered him at the door by the old serving-woman, the startling information that the signorino had gone to Naples. End of chapter 7 Part B